Man, we're going back to the book of Galatians, and I know I'm going to probably rush through this a little bit. We've been studying the gospel, or talking, Paul's been talking about the gospel and how the, the true gospel is so different from, uh, from actually any other religion in the world. Because if you think about it, every, every religion, including, if I can say, forms are of Christianity, uh, false forms of Christianity, emphasize, you know, in some way or the other that we have to live moral good lives to make God approve so that God would approve of us. But we've learned, if anything, from the Gospels that Paul has preached to the Galatians that salvation is not dependent on works at all, but it's dependent on faith, and that's it. By grace, and that's it. That's kind of interesting because if you read church history, and I know China's doing church history right now, if you read church history all the way from Jesus' time all the way to 1517, which is 1,500 years, the church was so caught up with salvation through works. The, the Roman Catholic Church as such was so caught up in, uh, if you know, the, what we call the sale of indulgences and so many things else and so many other things that they had where they emphasized. And one of the things they did was, you know, you, you drop your offering into that, into that box that they had. And by the time and your offering drops and touches from the top and goes to the bottom, by the time it touches the bottom of the, that box... The person, the loved one you've given that offering for, is his soul or his spirit is going to make it to heaven. You know, in that time that it comes down, he's going to go up. And there were so many other things. Salvation was purchased and bought depending on how much you could give. Till finally in 1517, Martin Luther, while reading the book of Galatians and going through Romans, and he realizes that Salvation is not bought by anything other than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that's it. Salvation comes through Christ and through Christ alone. And so in 1517, he takes this and makes this declaration, what we call the 95 Thesis, nails it to this church. And ever since then, what we call the Protestant movement was born. I wish I could say that from 1517 to now we've got it right, but that's far from the truth. Most of what we get online and on TV are so far away from the real gospel centered around the cross of Christ. And so let's always be aware about the gospel, the true gospel, that salvation comes not from following the law as what Paul points out here, but salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. And we picked this up last week on, you know, the argument here. The question is moving towards who is Abraham's child? Who are the real children of Abraham? And of course, Paul argues that, you know, what following the law or keeping the covenant doesn't make you a child of Abraham. It's faith in Christ, accepting the work of Christ and receiving the Spirit that makes you a real child of Abraham. Not following the covenant. These people, of course we know that these Jews are coming into this church, a Gentile church, and forcing these Gentiles to, to follow the law. And Paul says what? 
You don't have to follow the covenant. What you got to do is trust the promise. And we talked about this last week. Because the Jews were saying to be Abraham, you have to follow the, the covenant God made with Abraham. But Paul says, no, he's pushing it back. And he says, it's not the covenant, it's the promise. We have to hold on to the promise. And my question that came to me through this week and past few weeks is, what defines our relationship with God? What defines our relationship with God? Is it some sort, even though we don't have it written down, is it some sort of contract that we have with God? What defines our relationship with God? Reading the Bible, spending time in prayer, church attendance, tithing, supporting missions, doing some kind of ministry in the church, or how much we flow in the gifts of the Spirit. Now these are not Please don't get me wrong. These are not bad things at all. They are signs of maturity as Christians. But what I realize that a lot of us live very, if I can say, with a covenantal understanding of who God is. Because if I do this, 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 then God is going to bless me like this. Because if I don't do my part, well, if I do my part, God is going to bless me. If I don't do my part, God is going to curse me. Now again, please Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that you can do whatever you want to and God will bless you anyway. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, Paul talks about it pretty soon. How do we live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh? He talks about that. But I'm talking about, you know, we still got to live in obedience to the word. But we need to realize that God's blessings in our life are not dependent on our performance. We've got to allow that to sink in. God's blessing in our lives, in your life, is not dependent on your performance. It's dependent on His promise. You have to get that in. Because somehow we, we fall into this so easily. So easily. If you start going, you know... You, you, you look at Tom over here, you know, you look at him and, you know, he's a terrible guy. But I read my Bible every day and I pray every day, so I deserve God's blessing. We do that without even knowing that. But that's not what it's about. If we fall into that mindset, we're going to easily fall into the mindset of what the older brother and the prodigal son did. You know, I've worked faithfully for you so many years, now you got to bless me. That's the same mindset we have sometimes when we come to church because we look at someone else who doesn't deserve, who's not done the Christian things, and we think we deserve God's blessings more than they do. And we need to be careful, careful, careful to understand that when you base your relationship with Christ solely on your performance, you will be disappointed. Oh, I'm just standing on God's promises. Yes, you may be saying that in your head, but in your heart, you're really saying, God, I deserve this because I've been a good boy or a good girl. And if you, your relationship with God is based on that contract, you will be disappointed. And that's what Paul says here. Don't go with the covenant. Go with the promise. He's not eradicating the covenant. We still live in obedience to what the word of God says. But he says what drives you is the promise that God has given you. What God has made. 
someone emailed me, uh, and he, and I've been thinking about the switch from covenant to promise. From my position or relationship with God going from being based on agreed upon terms of both parties to shifting to Jesus' work on the cross. The only requirement for my justification and reconciliation to Jesus is his sacrifice and me accepting his work. Not adding to or doing my part, but accepting him. The promise he freely gives us is out of his unconditional love for me. I think that's what it is about. It's not us acting the right way so that God will pour out his blessing on us. It's about accepting Christ and understanding what it means so that he is in our hearts. Again, yes, we do have, we do, Paul talks about it, what it means to live by the Spirit, but that's what we need to get at. So if you are constantly battling to prove yourself to God, Battling to prove that you are good enough for God. And trust me, I have fought that battle many times. And I still fight that battle once in a while. Because in my mind, I slip into, I have to prove myself that I am good enough for God. That's so far away from the gospel that God, that Jesus preaches. Because it wears you out, church. It wears you out. It makes my relationship with God a chore because I'm constantly trying to win His approval. It makes it a chore. It stresses me out. It's, I'm constantly under the pressure so that I don't screw things up and God will just zap me and forget about me or dump me at the side of the road. That's not what it's about. It's about His promise. Again, I'm not saying take His grace and do whatever you want to in His life. Please, do not, do, I'm not saying that at all, but please do not fall into performance-based Christianity. I can't say that enough. Please do not fall into performance-based Christianity because that's exactly what Paul is arguing here in this church. He says, you are not Abraham's children because you keep the covenant. It's because of God's promise. That's what we need to hold on to. If I have to apply Paul... And what he's saying here to Galatians, and let me put it this way in our, in, our, in our day right now. If we are going to apply what Paul says here, performance-based Christianity doesn't earn us God's approval or blessing. It actually puts us under a curse. It actually puts us under a curse. Just as Paul says the law puts us under a curse, when we try and perform for God, we put ourselves under a curse because we will never be good enough for Him. It brings us under a curse. Again, please, don't use this as a license to do whatever you want to and Jesus is going to bless you. I'm not saying that at all. But at the same time, please do not. Please do not live under a curse that you are putting on yourself, basically. And that's why he's mad with them. He's like, You've, who has bewitched you? After knowing you're free, why are you going back into slavery? It's a choice they are making. It's the same thing we can do ourselves. We put that pressure on ourselves. The law, please understand this, the law not only put them under a curse, it also put them under a death sentence. It condemned them, essentially condemned them to die. And the only way to get out of this sentence was what? Accepting the work of Christ on the cross. 
When you, again, I'm, I'm, I'm just so caught up with performance-based Christianity because we see this all the time. And unfortunately, that's what we teach our kids. How Jesus is going to, you didn't make Jesus happy today. Jesus is always happy. <laughs> I, I, I know we've said that to our kids sometimes. And I'm like, why are we saying that? He's always happy. doesn't matter whether I'm good or bad. He's happy. He still loves me. Why do we get into performance-based Christianity sometimes? We do the same exact thing. And when we do that, we live under a curse. And the curse is what? We live under guilt. We live under shame. We live under condemnation. Just imagine waking up every day and facing that kind of guilt, that kind of shame, that kind of condemnation, that kind of death sentence. And we are asking for it ourselves. We are going underneath that when we try to perform for Christ. Perform for God. Again, like I said, I've done it for years. I did it for years and I never felt good enough. Even when I read my Bible faithfully for an hour every single day. Prayed for an hour and I used to keep track of how much I used to pray. I still felt under condemnation because the first time I missed it, I was like, oh no, God's going to dump me now. We do that to ourselves. I was reading an illustration by, it's a true story by, uh, of John Wesley, just an amazing uh, church leader, of course. Says John Wesley, when he was a student at Oxford, uh, he started a club called the Holy Club. A Holy Club. Now, John Wesley was a preacher. He was religious in his personal life and practice. He was mor- morally uh, uh, good in his conduct. Uh, good works. He and his friends would visit prisons and prisoners, go to the workhouses, help the poor. They did all this for slum children, uh, for the people who were orphans and everything else, help with education. Him and his friends in the Holy Club would observe the Sabbath on Saturday, keep the Lord's Day on Sunday. And so the whole weekend, they were faithful. They were generous. They fasted and they prayed. And thus they became the Holy Club. And then he writes in his own confession that we were bound in chains of our own self-righteousness and did not truly understand what trusting Jesus meant. Because they were so caught up doing all this self, he says this, came to trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And he said this, I finally found that I was living a life, I mean living faith of a slave and not of a son. Because he was trying so hard to do it right. He was living faith of a slave and not the faith of a son. And I thought that was so profound because that's exactly what he says in Galatians chapter 4. If you want to turn to the first uh, seven verses here. Galatians chapter 4, he says, What I am saying is that as long as you, uh, as an heir, is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Verse 4, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, 
God has made you also an heir. What a profound, profound statement. If you think about it, Paul is using this a very uh, 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 image that comes very naturally to his world because you think about it, they always had an, um, a rite of passage from uh, from a child to adulthood, specifically a boy, right from son to become from a child, he becomes an adult. From a son, basically he grows up. From a boy, he becomes a man, if you want to call it that. That's very common. Of course, we know, even now they do it. The Jews back then, what was it called? Bar Mitzvah, right at age 12, right? The, at age 12, his dad would take him the first Sabbath. The dad would take him to the synagogue, and there he would release him. Uh, you are no longer under me, but now you are under the law. That's what Bar Mitzvah. Now, of course, it's a big celebration with a lot of money and everything else, but that's not what it was. They had that. The Jews did that at age 12. If you talk about the Greek, the Greek culture was so dominant, the Greeks did that too. Right around 13 or 14 years old, there was a time where this child, this boy was taken and presented to the people. And then in some of the Greek cultures, they said it, he was assigned to a tribe or a clan. Sounds like a movie, which I don't know what movie that is. One of those movies where they assign people to a different group. What movie is that? What was it? Hunger Games. There you go. But that's what they do. They'd assign them to a thing. But this, this, at this age, this boy, they would cut his hair, you know, cut his hair short. Now he was a man. He was ready to contribute to society. You know, and uh, the Romans did the same thing too. And the Romans was a little later, probably when they were 16, 17. And they had this ritual where the kid or the child would come. He'd be presented in front of everybody. And they would bring their toys and everything else. And like, okay, we're done with this now. Now we are adults. Now we go into the real world. And now we become somebody. And that's the image he's using here. I was laughing because we have 40-year-old people who don't know, who haven't grown up yet. And we have 15, 16-year-old people who think they know everything in the world, you know. But <laughs> in the olden days, that was a very specific event they were talking about. You're no longer a child because as a child, you were a slave. You didn't, even though you owned everything in the world, you still didn't have the right to being a son. You were still a slave and then there's this moment happens when you change from being that slave, that baby, that child to becoming an adult and that's when you really are a son. And that's what Paul is trying to capture here. That's what he's trying to say. You know, you are no longer a slave. Now that you have met Christ, you're no longer a slave of the law. Now you're a son of God. Understand that part. That's the part he's trying to... That's the part he's trying to uh, get across to these guys. Verse, I'm rushing through this real quick. Verse 3, it says, you know, while you were a slave, you were under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Yes, he's talking about the law, but for us today it is. Yes, while we were a child as such, we were under the control of the world. We were under the control of the ruler of this world too. But we met Christ, and that's what it says there in verse 4. It's beautiful. But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Powerful, powerful statement. When the time had come, another translation says, in the fullness, that's how I learned it, in the fullness of time. 
realize God's timing is perfect. It was perfect back then and we look at it, but it's perfect in your life too. He's never late. He's never late. God's timing is perfect in your life. Back then, historically, you can see how perfect the timing was because as, as, if you're saying in terms of religion and religiosity as such, the Israelites were taken to Babylon and everywhere else. Why? Because they were into idolatry. But by the time they came back, there was no more idolatry. They were so entrenched into following the law, there was no more, you know, all these idols. And so as a religious group, they were really religious at this point of time. If you think about it culturally, the Greek culture had got the whole world back then thanks to Alexander the Great. Everybody spoke, almost everybody spoke some form of Greek, the Koine Greek or the local Greek language. So they were, everybody spoke a common language. The Old Testament as such, if you look at that time period before Jesus came, the Old Testament was complete. What they call the Ketuvim, you know, the prophets, the writings, uh, sorry, the law, the prophets and the writings. The whole Old Testament had been compiled and it was translated to Greek so that everybody had access to it too. That's why Jesus says, if you read the law, you would know who I am actually. If you read the scriptures, he says, you would know who I am. So they had, you know, religious, they were one God worshipping one God. Culturally, they knew they had a common language. Scripturally, they had the Bible, they had the thing. And of course, politically, the Romans had built this amazing road system that the gospel could be preached all over the place too. And so you see, historically, God's timing was perfect when he sent his son. Same thing in our lives. Don't ever think God is going to delay. God's delay is not really a delay. It's... He's just waiting for the perfect time. And it's not dependent on you. His perfect time. It says in the time was perfect. In his time, when the time had fully come, he sent his son. He sent his son. Pointing to what? His deity, his divine nature. He sent his son. And I like the word. He didn't say he created his son. He sent his son. Indicating what? He eternally existed before that. And he just sent him. In the beginning was what? John says. Was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then you drop down to verse 14. He says, and what? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He existed all along. And that's why he says he sent his son. The one who was uh, existent the whole time. He was born. He was sent. And then the next part he says, born of a woman points to his divinity that he came, his son, points to his humanity because he was born of a woman. It only took God. God couldn't be God. Let me put it this way. In his divine plan, he chose to be 100% God and 100% man. He chose that because it's only that kind of person as human he could take our place because if he wasn't human, he couldn't take our place. His perfect humanity, his per not perfect, I say perfect humanity because he lived a perfect life. The only person to have fulfilled every requirement of the law and be able to offer himself as sacrifice. When the time was perfect, God sent his son pointing to his divinity. And then he says, born of a woman pointing to his humanity. And then he says, born under the law so that we know that Jesus fulfilled every requirement of the law profound statement that points us to the cross. God 
man fulfilled the law. And because of what? Because of what? Why did he do that? So that he could redeem us. He could redeem us. The idea is to buy back. Buy us back. Live the perfect life. So that we could be, or he could redeem us. Redeem us from under the curse. Redeem us from under under sin. Redeem us from under the bondage that we were in. That's all it was. To save us, to redeem us from the bondage that we were, we were in. And love the last part of verse 5 there. It says He redeemed us. He redeemed us, those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Those words just rang through my heart and my spirit as I read it again. Because two years ago, this day, today, two years ago, Amar was put in Heather's hands and her arms and into her life. And this whole idea of adoption just came alive in my heart. So grateful that God allowed us to do that. And we are really grateful for a body of believers as I look around who have who walked with us through that journey too. So that we could get her out of an orphanage and not that it was a bad place but you know you, you think about adoption from that place to a home with a family and that's exactly what God does to us while we were lost. He picks us out, chooses us and adopts us so now we have a family part of son, as sons and daughters of God. No man could have ever come up with that story. We talked about it earlier. Because if you think about it, you know, you, you go into, you decide one day to be really stupid and go into uh, this multi-billion dollar home and go steal something so valuable and then you get caught and of course what you were stealing is so valuable they condemn you to death. And you're waiting there. The death sentence has been pronounced. You're waiting to be executed. But then the owner comes in with the son and he says, you know what? Let that guy go. My son will take his place. Kill my son instead. You know, and, and make, make it worse, make it more ridiculous. You know what? And then I'll go ahead and adopt him as my son. And everything that I have is his. My Ferrari is his. My boat is his. My house is his. And everything I have is his. How ridiculous does that sound? Yes, that's exactly what the gospel of Christ is all about. Foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jew. Because this whole idea of adoption is so ridiculous. But that's exactly what he does. That's what makes the gospel unique. That he loved us even though we were sinners. Far away, despising, rebellious, everything you can say. His enemies, he still loved us enough to adopt us as his children. That just blows my mind away. And like I said, especially this week as preparing for this. Two years ago, man, who would have ever imagined? I mean, that little girl fills our heart and our home with joy. Fills our heart with love, which is not conditional because she didn't do anything. She was just her. Imagine the joy it gives God the Father when He chose us. He chooses us and adopts us. 
the joy it fills his heart with. It brings him joy. Not based on our performance, like I said. It's because he chooses to love us that way. That's what adoption is all about. Not because we performed well. It's because he chose us. He chose us. The other side, if I look at it, I'm amazed that he would choose someone like me. That's why he sang that song, Amazing Grace. Sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Church, don't ever, ever lose track of the fact that he chose you. Not based on anything you have done, but because he loved you. That's it. So don't try and perform for him. He chose you. He chose you to be adopted as his sons and his daughters. And because, verse 6, it says, And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son in our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And then this verse, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. You are no longer a slave. A slave performs. A son doesn't have to perform. You are God's child. I get the privilege of calling him Abba, Father, Papa, God, Daddy, whatever you want to say it. It's a term that is intimate because he chose me. Because he chose me, I am no longer a slave, but I am a son. I want to finish real quick with this. You're a son and it also says that you are an heir. An heir enjoys the authority. The heir enjoys the inheritance. But the heir also, it comes with responsibility. It comes with responsibility and Paul gets into that pretty soon. So my question as we close today is, are we living Christian lives as a slave or as a son or a daughter of God? Because if you're constantly trying to perform and prove yourself to God, you are living as a slave. Let me say that again. If you're constantly trying to perform and prove yourself to God, you are living as a slave and not as a son but he has called us and adopted us as his children. Bow your heads with me. I know I kind of rushed through this, but we need to understand This gift of sonship or the gift of adoption, if you want to call it that. I'm always amazed that he would choose me. We 
We didn't pick up Amara, choose Amara to be a slave. We didn't pick up Amara to make her life miserable. We didn't pick up Amara to to work her. No, we picked her up so that we could love her. And I know as kids, sometimes we think our parents just hate us to death, but that's far from the truth. It's the same thing God does for us. He adopts us to call us His children. Not to force down the life of a slave, not to force the rules that we've got to live by, not to force these expectations in terms of performance. But He chooses us so that He can pour out His love day in and day out and remind us constantly that He loves us. All we got to do is accept it. That's it. All we got to do is accept it. So quit trying to perform to earn His approval. Quit trying to prove to God and to yourself and to those around you that You know, I belong here. All you got to do is accept his gift of sonship. As a son, as a daughter of the Most High God. And then allow his love for you to overwhelm your heart. Yes, Jesus. Father God, today we just come to you Acknowledging a God that that it was nothing that we did that made you stop and choose us. It's nothing that we did, God. But you chose us because you loved us. Because you created us knit us together that's it help us to rest in that promise help us to rest in that promise we accept your work on the cross we live by your spirit today with the assurance of your love that is not conditional knowing that we are sons and daughters of God but we are also heirs to a kingdom we walk in that authority of God we walk in that privilege of God but we also walk in that responsibility thank you for loving us thank you for loving us Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. God bless you guys. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful day and rest of the week. Amen.